You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And this month, we are talking about one of my all time favorite Treasury Editions, Limited Collector's Edition number C52, The Best of DC, Volume 1. Question mark. And joining me to talk about this great, great comic is my pal, Paul Kien. Hi, Paul. Hey, Rob. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm I doing, wish there was a volume two. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, it's very interesting <laughs> that it says so so prominently volume one on the cover of this book. What a great way to kick off 2021 for Treasury Cast. Like as I said, this is one of my all-time favorite Treasury editions, and we'll you know, get into how great these stories are and everything else. But, Paul, this is now, what, your second podcast? Second ever, ever podcast, yes. Okay, so, so far, we're, it's, it's just me so far. That's all you've done <laughs> this podcast is with me. There are better hosts out there, Paul. Uh, I, can I don't know. I, I had a lot, a lot of fun on the Super Friends podcast uh, for all mankind and hoping I can uh, – Keep up, uh, keep up the good streak here on Trophy oh, Cast. I'm sure you will. Yeah, we had a great time over on For All Mankind. And you, as you saw, you were very well received. People were like, we got to have you back in the network. So here we are <laughs> talking about Best of DC. This book came out July 7th, 1977. And, man, I can remember uh, – I literally remember buying – getting this treasury off the newsstands. I remember where I bought it. Uh, Paul, uh, for people who don't know, didn't listen to the For All Mankind episode, you're from this area. You and I are Jersey boys, so we're, from yep. the very, we're you know, we're close to one another. Have you lived in this area your whole life, or you or, or, uh, or what? I have, other than about um, eight years after college when I lived in Connecticut for a job and then moved back down here about 25 years ago. I have lived in South Jersey uh, my whole life, and um, yeah, I, I – I, know where I got this. I don't remember the day I got it, but I remember reading it and rereading it over the years. This is the first time I read a number of all these stories, um, all of which are classics in my opinion. Uh, and so I have very fond memories of this treasury edition. Yeah. This limited I, uh, collector's edition. I should say. Yeah. Limited collector's edition. Yeah. I, uh, I used to live in, in the seventies. We lived in, in, uh, Philadelphia and, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, my dad would often take me, and I've mentioned this on other shows, my dad would often take uh, me and my sister to the Neshaminy Mall in, uh-huh, in Pennsylvania. Sure. You're familiar with that, right? The yeah, Neshaminy Mall, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because they had a movie theater inside the mall, and we would yeah. often see movies there. And right across the street from the from the theater was a Woolworths, uh, mm-hmm. which is a chain that's uh, I don't think it's a national chain, but it's a like a East Coast chain, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I it's remember like, Woolworths. Yeah, yeah, Woolworths, like a dry goods. They had a little diner in the front. It was, you know, it was that kind of. Uh, that kind of thing. And I remember they carried comics. They had a very big select. I mean, every, everybody had comics back then. And mm-hmm. they had a very big selection. And I remember my dad taking me over to the Woolworths. And I remember this comic. I remember, you know, sitting there on the shelf. And mm-hmm. 
you know, my dad obviously was very generous because this was a $2 comic back in the time mm-hmm. when comics were 40 cents, but he knew the value of, you know, buying me these, this giant thing. So I can, I Keep literally quiet still, for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's worth its weight in gold. And I can, I can, you know, I said, it's amazing how many memories in the past 40 years have drifted out of yeah. my mind. You know, there are women that I've dated whose names I don't remember, but I can remember <laughs> buying, and there weren't that many women, so you would think, you know, they would stick out of my memory. <laughs> but uh, I can remember, you know, kneeling down and seeing this thing, this gorgeous Neil Adams cover of Superman holding uh, the stack of comics, and then behind him are all the splash pages for the book, and it says Best of DC, and then you've got the DC bullet looking like it's made of silver, and it's like reflecting light. It's just gorgeous so yeah i this thing is really beloved to me because then i can re- literally remember buying it so wh- what do you think of this this cover i mean this cover oh, is just- the cover is fabulous i mean it's 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 fantastic you know you got neil adams giant size you've got the other characters on the back um you know batman and the flash and, and the others in the back um, i love the touch that the kid from the house of mystery stories got his head down and yeah just, <laughs> you know he's like oh. <laughs> um i always found it um funny that they have the splash pages and not the covers of the stories mm-hmm. um but then i went and i looked it up and not all the covers of course featured the um the story that that's right. being highlighted right. um and and even more so the the the, the batman story cover from batman number uh, 237 it gives away one of my favorite parts of the story that we'll get to in a minute <laughs> so uh it's good that it wasn't on this cover yeah i remember um there were two places i used to get comics and i used to go on saturday mornings with my dad he would go to his office and just catch up on work for a few hours on saturday morning and i think to get me out of the house because my sister was real little at the time i would go with him and um he we would go to the little corner store and get comics but when i got a little older and by this point i was 11 or 12 i could also walk from his office um to another store and this was a it was kind of like a well it's a little more of a general store and they had a um stand-up racks instead of uh, – and they also had spinner rack, but they had stand-up racks. And that I remember getting my treasury editions or several of them there because they could fit, right? Mm-hmm. The, tre- the, uh, the limited collector's editions and the treasuries didn't fit in the regular spinner rack, and I don't recall ever buying them at the other store where I bought a, bought a lot more of my comics. But I know at this other store um, I was able to pick these up. And then I would bring them back and you know, be engrossed in reading my comics for that morning until it's time to go home. But uh, so, yeah, no, this is a this is a great cover. Uh, I love, like you said, the DC bullet sort of shining, like, you know, and <laughs> it's really a great cover. That's I mean, am- it, that's amazing that you went to the office with your dad, because as I, I again, I've mentioned this in other podcasts, that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what I did. My dad would buy me because he would work, occasionally put yep. in time on Saturdays. Yep. And he was in the insurance business and he would take me with him and he would buy me treasuries because the dollar value, the, the reading value was so great. He knew yep. they would, as you said, keep me quiet yep. for several. And I would sit at his secretary's desk with like four or five of these things and just read and read and occasionally go down to the cafeteria where they had vending machines <laughs> and buy myself like a sandwich and a chocolate milk and yeah. He just, you know, he could just work uninterrupted, and these were my babysitters. So that's amazing. We have we had virtually Very the same similar experience. experience, and yeah. I remember probably also at exactly the same time too, right? Yeah, just, yeah, around the same age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I'm I'm only a couple of years older than you, I think, and so it's it's uh, it's it's pretty funny, you know. And you're right, comics were in a lot of places. I get when I, you know. Um, 
was a little bit older. There was, you know, a couple Seven Elevens and all these other places. But I remember two places: Gates Corner Store in Bridgeton, New Jersey, and Hummel's. Uh, the, this was the other second store where I got the Treasuries. Uh, I just remember them very vividly in my head, and you know, picking up picking up comics at these uh, at these places. Oh, uh, I have to say, since this is you know, my one chance to be on Treasury. I have my favorite Treasury story that I do remember, if you'll indulge me. Sure. Uh, and you can cut it if you don't like it. But no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> the other um, favorite Treasury story is uh, the other, another place that I would get comics is one, uh, every week or two, uh, we would pile in the car, my mom, my, my grandmother, my sister who was real little, uh, and we would go visit my great-grandmother who lived in Cedarville, New Jersey, okay. which is – Middle of nowhere, you know, mm-hmm. down in the sticks. Mm-hmm. And on the way, as we're getting close to there, there's a – we called it the Little Brown Store. It was like a little deli, you know, um, type store. And they had comics in it. And my mom, we would – she knew well enough that she'd pull over. She'd give me a dollar, and I'd run in, and I'd make, get a couple of comics, whatever I could get. Well, this one time in 1976, I remember this very vividly. Um, we did that. I ran into the store, and lo and behold, there was Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. Oh! <laughs> and I had known that it was coming because I'd seen ads, and I was old enough to know like that this was a big deal and DC versus Marvel and all this stuff. I was like, ha, 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 I don't have enough money. So I grabbed it. I ran out of the store without paying and ran to my <laughs> mom in the car. I said, Mom, Mom, look what I got. She said, did you run out of that store without paying? And I said, uh, uh. She, said, she marched me right back in. <laughs> Fortunately, she did buy the comic for me that I have to this day. It's beat up with the cover detached and everything. But <laughs> that's how I got Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man. So, anyway, I thought you of all people would appreciate that story. That is marvelous. That is – oh, my God. That's, <laughs> you just – you know, it was like it's the most important thing in the world when you saw it. <laughs> I was like, Mom, Mom, look. I got to have $2, Mom. <laughs> I wonder if the the guy at the counter was like, "What the hell? That kid What's going on? What's going on here? Wow, that that is amazing! Oh my god, that is marvelous!" So, okay, so let's talk about the best of DC. On the inside yeah. cover, there is a little editorial. Um, according to Mike's Amazing World, this uh, book was edited by Joe Orlando, so maybe this is his work. And he gets into the details of why they chose some of the stories. He talks about how they wanted to represent different eras of DC comics. He specifically mentions that um, they thought about including the flash of two worlds, of course, mm-hmm. one of the most uh, you know significant stories of the DC universe, but they realized it was a little too long and it would have had to push out some of the other stories. So that, that went out. And then they do mention that they're hoping that they will be back next year with That's a companion done. collection. And again, we will talk about that at the, after we finish the uh, stories in this issue, we'll talk about whatever happened to that book. Yep. Uh, but, but yeah, this was, you know, the, as it says on the cover, volume one, they, inc- they certainly uh, intended this to be an ongoing series of some sort within the treasuries. Uh, but unfortunately this is it. This is our one, <laughs> this is our one shot, one, one shot, our one collection. So, all right. So the very first story is night of the Reaper. It is from Batman number two thirty seven. It is by the unbeatable team of Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. So on Halloween, the annual Vermont parade is taking place, and Dick Grayson is there with some friends. While in the parade, Dick notices some crooks attacking a man dressed as Robin. After breaking it up, Dick, as Robin, follows them and finds a corpse of a man in a Batman costume. At that moment, Robin is attacked by a dark figure known as the Reaper and falls into a river. Batman, who has been tracking fugitive Nazi war criminal Kurt Slosh to the annual Halloween parade, finds Robin and takes him to the house of Tom Fagan, the organizer of the Vermont parade. 
Robin is checked by Batman's friend, Dr. Benjamin Gruner, a survivor of the Holocaust. Meanwhile, Dick's friends come across the Reaper. Batman's investigation leads him to find that the other ex-Nazis have been searching for Schloss because they believe he knows the location of some secret Nazi treasure. Those, um, those are the Nazis that tried to kill Robin, thinking they may be the real thing. Batman stops them for good, but not before they are able to kill Schloss. When they finally meet, Batman deduces the Reaper's identity as Dr. Gruner, who sought revenge on Schloss. Unfortunately, Gruner has lost himself in his Reaper's personality, and he attacks Batman. The Reaper tries to make his escape through a nearby dam, and he is stopped by the presence of Dick's Grace, Dick Grayson's friend, Alan. When Reaper gets ready to strike and kill him, he sees Alan starve David amulet, and Gruner becomes horrified with his own actions. Unaware that he was walking on the edge of the dam, Gruner stumbles with his robe and falls downwards to his death. All right, Paul. Uh, I mean, man. Wow. You know, what, what a, a great... heavy, what is a heavy story. I mean, wow. Off the best of DC collection. I mean, you know, this, this is a classic, of course. Uh, this, like you said, unparalleled team of Denny Neal, Neil Adams, Dick Giordano. I mean, I, I, you know, I love it. I mean, it's a great story. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's a tragedy, right? It's a tragedy mm-hmm. all around. Um, it's got, you know, uh, it's got some fun in it with the Vermont Parade. We'll get to that, I'm sure, in a minute. Yep. Uh, it's got fabulous art. Uh, it's got a, a message about not getting lost in revenge. Um, it's teaching kids about, you know, the terrible things that, that happened under the Nazi regime. I mean, just wow. Yeah. One of, and also one of the great splash pages in Batman history. Oh, There's a especially. lot of great Batman splash pages, but this shot of a seemingly dead Batman with a wooden stake in his chest attached yeah. to a tree yeah. is just one of the grabber images of all time. I remember yeah. being a kid and I was like, whoa. I, I mean, you open this book up, you're like, whoa. Yeah, That's exactly that, is, it. that is a heavy image. And you look at the uh, credits, it says this uh, after it mentions Adams, Giordano, and O'Neill, it says from an idea by Bernie Wrightson, with an assist from Harlan Ellison. It's like, talk about it. Yeah. I mean, my God, how many big people did they get? You know, what did Jack Kirby come in and ink a panel? I mean, how many lettered it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many heavy hitters can you work into this thing? So yeah, it's it's an amazing splash page. And then we cut right open right after we get to the splash page. There's this wonderful uh, double page spread of uh, the Dick and his friends going through the, the Rutland, Parade, and I don't know about you, Paul, but I remember as a kid seeing the Rutland thing mentioned in a lot of comics, and yeah. I had no idea what it was. I was like, "Boy, these <laughs> these comic guys really seem to love this Rutland thing because it it seems to appear a lot." I had no idea I, what it was. I thought it was cool. I, I didn't understand it either, but I thought it was cool. It was in both DC and Marvel comics, yep, and it's yep. all that generation. You know, now that I'm older, I understand what it was. A generation with Len Wein and and Denny O'Neill and Mark. You know, Mar- I think Marv Wolfman wrote some and Jerry yep, Conway, yep. all those guys. And uh, it was just a recurring thing. And then I didn't realize till much later that apparently it was a real thing. Right. Yep, that, yep. That, and Tom Fagan was a real guy, which yep. I think is, is hysterical. I mean, I love this two page spread. I love how you've got the floats in the background and Dick and his friends are sort of walking through the three big panels. I mean, I just think it's the composition it's great. I love how Neil Adams snuck Havoc in there. Yeah, yeah, uh, Captain America. Yeah, Captain was, America. Yep, yep. And the costumes are never quite right on these homemade costumes. Which yeah, I, they're, I think, they're kind of I janky think looking. Yeah, yeah, especially with some of the party scenes later on. I think it's, I think it's really cool how they how they did all that. But but I love how it starts with Dick and his friends. Ah, just I thought you guys could use a weekend away for the from the. <laughs> 
from school like, and they go to Vermont, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, fun. I love in the, uh, the very back of the parade, there's somebody dressed as man bat. <laughs> I thought that's an ambitious costume to go as man bat. I mean, well, and real. is, is the little guy, is that supposed to be, um, bat mite? You know, you, cause you got man bat, you got, it looks like bat girl, then another Batman and then a little tiny, like a baby Batman. I wondered if that was supposed to be bat mite. I don't know. <laughs> I, I remember being a kid and when they would do these these Rutland things, yeah. I always got a, a thrill because you did get you you got to see Marvel heroes in a DC book yeah. and yeah. vice versa. And that was, you know, as a kid, you're just That's talking cool. about Superman versus Spider-Man. You didn't see that much. No. So every time they had threw that in, it was such a little like, oh, OK, cool. Yeah. Look, there's havoc. In well, there. and maybe this is a pattern for you, because in the last or not the last treasure you did on on the Christmas one, but the one before that you had the. Uh, in the Marvel, uh, the Avengers story, they were in Rutland too. And the That's one right. The, the super, so it's like, I don't know, Rob. Maybe you're maybe it's time to tell you need to take a trip to Rutland when uh, uh, maybe I, I yeah I've never been to Vermont other than driving through it to get to Maine. So <laughs> oh maybe so. Uh, but okay, so yeah, the art yeah. job by Neil Adams is just yeah. it's him at the top of his game. This does feature uh, a shot of Batman with a stake through his heart attached to a tree, but we find out that it's not, of course, Batman. Not it's Batman. it's another guy that's been killed. You think it's Batman, and then it leads to this wonderful full page shot of the Reaper with his scythe trying to cut Robin's head off. And then I love that there's no wow. sound effects, yeah. nothing. It's just the image of this guy. Well, and what makes it even better is at the bottom of page seven, Robin turns his head around and he goes, <gasps> and yep. just the, the look of horror on his face. And he's, he's looking up and you're like, what's he looking at? You turn the page. You're like, wow. Yeah. Uh, I think Shag would call it kapow. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is unbelievable. Um, yeah page and you know this is i know you talk like you like to talk a lot about things that that highlight the you know the the size of the of the book being a highlight for the art i mean here's a really great example yeah absolutely um i i skipped over uh, there's this close-up on um, page six of tom fagan and you can tell that neil adams is working from a photo because it is a photo realistic <laughs> shot yeah. of tom fagan so tom fagan should have gotten a who's who listing I think. I mean, he's, you know, he really should And a Marvel uh, Ohatmu listing. Ohatmu listing. There you go. He's Could crossing. have been the crossover. <laughs> you definitely should have, should have done that. Um, there's another kind of photorealistic shot of the Dr. Gruner character. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, you could just tell that Neil Adams is working off of photos. Again, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you just mm-hmm. tell that he's going for this sort of photorealistic style. Then we have another scene taking place at uh, another party. And, of course, Batman blends right in because he's just yeah. Batman. Uh, I love it. And I love how Tom goes, man, you got the muscles to go with it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows him. this guy's really cut. But we see here, we see somebody dressed as Thor. Uh, we see somebody saying, uh, you really write comic books, huh? Boy, that's a dumb way to make a living. That's got to be Denny O'Neill. That looks like I, Denny I was wondering, that, that, that looked like, that. I thought that was Denny O'Neill too. So, yeah, but yeah. Um, how he must have looked in the early or the mid-70s, yep. I love that the janky Thor has got a hammer in his belt, an actual, like, tool, you know, toolbox hammer. Yep. Of and he's got a colander on his head for yeah. his <laughs> That's great. We see Spider-Man in the background. There's a guy dressed as Kane who uh, I assume is, uh, although, no, Mark Hannerfeld was uh, able. That was, he was uh, inspired by, so not so much uh, Kane, but there's a guy dressed as Kane, and there's the party going on, and then the Reaper attacks again. That Who is the it. character in the top left on page uh, 13, the, 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 the girl? You know, she's got like a, you know, a star, like 
star bat. You yeah, know, she for, seems for, specific. I wonder if yeah. that's supposed to be maybe Louise Simonson or Marv Wolfman's yeah. wife at the time. Yeah, it's know. clearly somebody specific. Because it's before Neil Adams, because he did that kind of effect when he went and did uh, – Miss Mystic, I think. Miss Mystic, yes. Wow. Deep cut. Deep cut. He did that. He did that kind of effect when he when he broke and did that. But but I don't. I think this was before that. So I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. She's beautiful. As Neil Adams drawing women is just beautiful. So at least again, this marvelous fight scene. There's this great bit where Batman is is uh, punching out one of the goons, and I love that it's 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 in the middle of the night. Not middle night, but it's in a dark room. And you've got these camera flashes. And so you've got in between panels where it's just total darkness. And then I love the last panel is what the guy sees. And yeah. Batman, just before he hits him, not him, you just see this big close-up of Batman's fist as he's about to knock him out through this, uh, through the te- through the light tower. It's just, it's, yeah. again, beautiful way of conveying. I mean, uh, in any other comic, this page would have been like the best page. But they're like yeah. four pages better than it in this story. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. And then we have the scene with Batman where he's uh, trying to rescue Schloss, and we see Schloss starts his VW bug and it explodes. So they got that too. Uh, and then Batman talking to Robin. I love Batman's disgust. He's, he's, I'm including an innocent bystander whose only fault is wearing my costume. You tell his widow, his orphans, just exactly how great I am. Robin's like, it wasn't your fault. And this is very much like a Power Records Batman. He's very sort of a tortured soul kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And he's a little mean to Robin. I always I thought in this. Is, you know, I was like, it's kind of a, a little mean to him in my opinion. But what are you, you going to do? He's, he's uh, upset. He's, he's, upset. he's upset. Exactly. He's stressed out. Uh, so then it's, then it ends with this, this scene on the dam with uh, – with, are there dams in Vermont? I don't know the topography of Vermont. Are there a lot of dams there? Great big ones that you can just walk out on. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, Ryan Daly, you you were in Vermont. Tell me if that if that's a thing. Security was lighter back then, I guess, yeah, and I guess they didn't so. have safety just, rails. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Luckily, nowadays we secure federal buildings much better. Um, so, uh, so we've got the the Reaper going after Alan, and then he sees the the Star of David, and then he trips and falls, and man, and he fall. I mean, from the sound effect when it's got the yeah. chuck. Sound effect. Yeah. He doesn't just fall. Yeah. He falls on his own on his own so, yeah. sight. So yeah. it's like And look Whoa. at Batman's face in that panel, the one with the chuck. He's yeah. like, Oh, I didn't want mm-hmm. that to happen. Because even earlier on, he's like he's like, I don't want to I don't want to fight you. I don't I don't I don't you know, Batman does not strike him. Uh you know, Dr. Schloss or yep. through this um uh through this whole adventure and he's like trying to just you know, rein him in. Yeah. He knows Gruner has just lost yeah, the Gruner, plot no, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's amazing. I said when I was a kid, you know, this was heavy. It was a yeah, heavy, heavy story to read. And yet again, they, you know, they knew kids could could handle it and understand the moral of it about yep. getting law. I mean, it's it's really only the one word balloon where he's like, what have I become? That's the payoff. Yep. And you, you, know, you right. have to expect that kids understand that, that, oh, wait a minute, this yep. guy. Well, they don't really, treat you like they don't treat you like an idiot. He sees yeah. he sees the star of David and he's like. And that reminds him of, you know, what he's lost. And, and he's yeah. like, what have, what have I become? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a marvelous yeah. story. Just, yeah. absolutely. You, you can see why it would immediately be one of the yep. – for the best of DC to, to, to head off for it. So it's, it's just, just fantastic. So uh, sorry. So the next story, uh, if anything in my mind, is even a little better. Uh, this is one of my all-time favorites, The Demon Within from the House of Mystery number 201. It's by Joe Orlando. John Albano and Jim Aparo, which is just wonderful to say all in a row. Orlando <laughs> Albano Aparo. Um, now I covered this with Ryan Daly over on It's Midnight because again, this is one of my all-time 
favorite stories. Uh, it's when a family concerned with their social standing within the community discover that their little boy has the ability to shape change into a demon. They have the child lobotomized so that his behavior does not continue to embarrass them. Now, again, there's a lot more to it. I, we yeah. covered it over on It's Midnight. But this is, to me, one of the great DC stories of all time. I mean, it's just Th- it's is, only seven pages, but, man, it's a punch. It packs up. It's unbelievable. I did. I wasn't um, a reader of House of Mystery or House of Secrets or anything, and I've only recently started reading a bunch of them. I, I got one of the omnibuses in on the DC Universe. But um, – you know, they had a lot of great stuff and, and oh my gosh, the art from Jim Aparo in this is unbelievable. Oh, you know, the, the, the splash page with the, the, the demon, the, the girl is sitting there reading a book and, you know, peaceful and, 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 uh, and then to, to read this story and the boy just can't control himself. He's however old he is. And, and, and then the parents being so jerky, I was, oh, it was man. just, it just shivers down the spine and you could tell where it was going. Right. And they take him to the hospital. They're committing him. And I'm like, what are they going to do to this kid? And um, this was one that, you know, stuck with me. I, I never like I said, I don't never read a whole lot of these stories when I was younger. But but this one, you know, just always would creep me out. Yeah. I mean, I never read the I didn't really get House of Mystery that much either. So this is where I read this story for the first time was yep, in this too. comic. The splash page again fantastic of this little girl reading a book in a chair and the deed that her brother is behind her in demon form. And he's kind of like, <laughs> um, one of the details I love is that when this, first of all, the monster the kid turns into is scary looking. I mean, he's no doubt scary, <laughs> but he never actually, at least what you've seen hurts anybody. Yeah. He just scares them. Like he turned, you know, he's frightening. And maybe you could say that, you know, he didn't get the chance to hurt anybody, but like we see him in the classroom and all the, te- you know, the kids are yelling, but he never, you don't get the impression the kids have been hurt. And then at one point he's, he turns into a monster and he's scaring a bunch of people on a bus, but he never actually hurts anybody. So it is all about the social standing of, yeah. of this kid. And man, it is, it is heartbreaking where they're in the car and the kid goes, are you going to, and first of all, they, um, they seem to suggest maybe that the kid has a stutter as well. Cause he's like, uh, are you going to g- give me away? Because well, I didn't someone, catch that, but yeah. someone because I would now it's, I think it's just pretty much that one panel. So maybe that's just because he's nervous. But the fact that the kid knows something is up is yeah. really horrifying. And you just look at the last panel and the expression on his face after being lobotomized. It just gives you shivers. Oh and man! I, and it, the passersby on on the on the street right before that says, "Excellent stock, Mister and Missus Winters are yeah. truly a credit to the community." Even their children are models of good behavior, especially their little boy. I was like, oh, oh man. <laughs> Take yeah. that dagger from the Batman story and put it right through my heart. Seriously. I mean, it's like, man, you, you, you read these two stories. Like, DC's not playing around with this best of DC collection. Yeah. They are hitting you in the solar plexus one after the other. And, you know, I, I've, I've said this again on the other podcast, but it's like Jim Aparo at this point in his career. This is around the mid-70s, mm-hmm. 73, I believe this came out. Batman, Jim Aparo was one of their heavy hitters. I mean, we know he only ever did work for DC. DC knew how good he was, and they mm-hmm. kept him employed up until he basically passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was working on Batman by this point. And I think for him to do House of Mystery, that must have been something he maybe just wanted to do. Uh, because I don't think DC, I, I don't want to use the word waste because that's not what I mean, but it's, I think in DC's mind, they did not want to necessarily use their heavy hitter artists on a book that was not maybe one of their best sellers. They wanted to use Jim Apparel on Batman. Yeah. I know? was wondering about that too. Maybe, uh, you know, Joe Orlando is obviously a big deal at DC and he came up with a plot for this and maybe he just said, you know, 
this story is too good. I want to, I want to give it to one of our best. And, yeah. um, yeah. and, you know, and then he, you know, said, Hey, can you squeeze in seven pages? And, and they figured a way to squeeze it into a schedule. Oh uh, man. Cause you're right. Oh, it's it's mm. just marvelous. Just absolutely marvelous. So yeah. I, and he said, and, and as a kid, again, I'm, I'm six years old reading mm-hmm. this, you know, and, uh, it, again, it packs a wallet that you're like, wow, they really, I don't think I even knew what a lobotomy was as a kid. Yeah, but you see the operation, and then you yeah. see the boy. You don't have it's very understated, just like the death scene in the other one. It, uh, that's you know you don't need gore. You know you need that understated. Yep. Ah. It's <laughs> it's just really Great stuff. really good. Great stuff. So all right, so next up, a bit of a change up here. We got the Flash from uh, Doorway to the Unknown from Flash number one hundred forty eight. It's by John Broom, Carmen Infantino, of course, and Joe Jella. The Flash gets a visit from a repentant crook named Fred Dahlman who puts him on the trail to save the life of a man he framed for his crime and who, in turn, gets him to save his brother from a life of crime. But when the speedster mentions Dahlman's name to the police, he learns that Dahlman died last night at midnight, precisely the time he appeared to the Flash. Wow. Uh, what do you think of this one? I, I, re- I remember my initial reaction being like, whoa, like that's a cool ending, you know, and, and thinking, you know, you don't usually get that. I mean, the flash was always the sci-fi, right? Right, um, exactly. And so this little mystical spiritual, uh, part where the guy had a change of heart and basically sends his spirit to get the flash to resolve the issue, um, is a really nice, twist i mean really very clever if you ask me and uh and and you know i just i, I it, you know it's it's not as substantive as some of the other because it's it, it's it's all you know works up to the the twist as the main point which is which is uh you, you get but it's really really a great story um, it is unusual for flash in that it had, yeah. does have that mystery hook ending yeah uh, yeah yeah and you don't even really know it's a mystery until you're like three quarters of the way through which is kind of neat and I like that John Broom is the writer doesn't try and cheap out like he yep. explains something. It's like no, he, the Flash no. wanders away saying, "No, wait a minute, there's really no way that could have been Dolman unless." Yeah. And they even have this little button on the end where it says, "The strange force that we all call the Spirit <laughs> of Man is still unknown. We can only glimpse its true wondrous power in events that we label mysterious and gradually forget." If you believe in the invincible Spirit of Man, you will believe this story. Wow. <laughs> That's a great one. You know, a couple of things I did like about this story. Like, if you go back, if you look at the um, the the title of the story, the doorway to the unknown, that's like the challengers of the unknown logo with the word doorway. Uh, that's true. Know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love that. And then the other thing that I thought was pretty funny, if you look on page four of the story, page thirty-six of the book, Carmine could have done a little better on the map of the U.S. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a little vague. Maybe Earth One's USA looked a little different, but Florida looks a little limp there. I gotta say, yeah. Florida needs one of those little pills. But anyway, <laughs> um, and then, but you know, but then you see if you look at his motion. Like I always, one of the things I I didn't appreciate Carmen Infantino as much till I got a little older. When I when I was um, a kid, I thought he was a little he was stiffer than you know. Hmm. The, Jim Aparo or Neil Adams or somebody. So I wasn't, but he, he really knows how to show motion. Like if you just look oh, at yeah. pages eight and nine, I mean, Flash is really, you, you, you understand how the Flash is moving. Yep. And I just think that's cool. And he goes and catches the bullets at the end. He's going through the, I don't know. I just love that motion. 
So it's uh, it was you have to appreciate too, like you said, you didn't appreciate uh, Inventino as much. When you think about drawing the Flash, Ricard meant you had to draw probably three times as many figures in an average story as anybody <laughs> so, else because you have to draw the Flash five times was in every panel. Image, yeah. uh, and by the way, you mentioned that map, so that really does show us that Central City is. Yep, uh, in the sort Midwest, of. you know, it's like okay, there it is. Okay. I didn't realize that. I mean, I remember that being a realization to me. And then I was like, when I even when I was a kid, saying, "Oh, Central City, okay, it's in the middle. That makes sense, yeah, right?" It's like Wisconsin or something. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense because I, I, you know, was very East Coast centric growing yep. up, and yep. um, still am to some degree, I suppose. But that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so. yep. I also love the the final page where the Flash is sort of it's you can tell it's it's dawn, the sun just coming up. I love these cityscapes that Carmen Infantino draws. <laughs> Because you're like, where is he? <laughs> where is the Flash? He is he is walking in this. I don't. I, I I can't even tell what I'm looking at. It looks like an airplane strip, but yet it's paved like it's a walkway. Yeah. And the city is like a thousand miles in the distance. You're like, what is all this empty land that the Flash is just wandering across it's, yeah, that's hysterical it does give it that wonderful futuristic kind of look and as you Absolutely. say the flash was such a science heavy book and yet here's john broom sticking in this mystery you yeah. know yeah. i mean if you, if you took out the flash part you could have made this a house of mystery story yeah, that's about a, a guy yeah, that so. if, if the flash had been a cop and he's yeah. the one who you know gets the guy out of a life of crime yeah. and he's like oh he died at midnight what i mean it's you know really yeah. could written it like that so yeah it's an, yeah. an, an interesting change up after the first two stories yeah. where the first two are so heavy and then you've yeah. got the sort of cartooniness of the flash falling after that. So, and again, here you can see we're bopping around because we've got, you know, the seventies for Batman and house of mystery. Now we're talking the sixties from the flash. And then we're going to yeah. stay in the sixties here for the next uh, story, which is whew, another, another heavy hitter, dirty job from our army at war. Number two forty one by Bob Haney and Alex Toth. This is, uh, this whoa. Is- uh, three Roman centurions make their way to a tavern for a drink after just completing what one of them calls a dirty job. As they argue about their work, one of them, Antonius, starts to feel sick about what they've done and what the last words were of one of the men they crucified. We then see, of course, that the man Antonius performed the dirty job on was Jesus Christ. <sighs> wow. <laughs> this blew my mind when I was a kid, and I have remembered this story for years, I think I like made my mom read it or something. I'm like, well, this is an unbelievable story. Wow. And and the art. I mean, Alex Toth is perfect for this. Yep. The, the expression on uh, the centurion's face and the, the one that's like, oh, you know, kill them before they can kill us. I mean, yep. and in four pages that you can do four this. Four pages. Can, and one of them is a, a giant, you know, end splash page of the. Uh, you know the right right the final image is just the shot of the silhouette so it's really three pages of the story and just you know just the first time you read it and having that you know surprise factor and you know regardless what what your religion is it's just know that that's the uh that's the setting of the story which you don't know going into it is really just pretty impressive storytelling if you ask me oh yeah i mean that that is one of the things i like about it is that it doesn't really matter about your religious conviction it's you understand what the point of the story is uh and that the the anguish that the antonius feels about it, and that the other two are just they don't care and in fact i love in the opening panel They're where we see one of the guys he, he pushes uh, like a uh, like a 
like, I don't know, someone with like a, what, I don't know what that, yeah. yeah, like a peasant over, shepherd. he's like a bide, a shepherd, that's what it was, and he's like a bide swine, and he's pushing this person over, just treating them like they're garbage, and the layout is fantastic, because the tea and dirty is a sword, and the blood is dripping down across down the page. Again, you'll see this over on the website, firewaterpodcast.com. And in the final panel, the, the blood has turned into wine in the goblet that they're drinking from. I mean, it's just Un- unbelievable. I mean, I mean, and you don't really get that. I'm glad you mentioned that thing with the sword dripping down into the wine. Cause you don't really get that until you get to the end. And then you go back, mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to reread this story right away. And then you're like, wow. And you can see the foretelling. It's just really just a, a unbelievable, um, you know, uh, it's just amazing uh, the, the the storytelling here. And yeah. you know, this is I, I looked this up because this has only been reprinted one other place, and that was in a Sergeant Rock special from 1991. Wow. So you know, it's amazing because this 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 is just you would think a timeless story that you know if they have four pages to fill somewhere, it'd be easy to stick it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's a it is just marvelous and t- I mean. Again, everybody knows Alex Toth was a huge guy out in, anima- in doing an animation, and he really only worked in comics basically when he felt like it. And he was yeah. never a bit, despite his work on the Super Friends, which is legendary, he never was that big on superheroes. He didn't really want to do a lot of superhero work. So he did a lot of stuff for the war books, some horror stuff. So obviously, this is the kind of thing he could really sink his teeth into because it was not superheroes. It's, it's people out of history. Uh, and I love, by the way, I love there's no. There's no uh, gutters on these panels. The panels are all just jammed right up against each other. Mm-hmm, Gives mm-hmm. it a very claustrophobic kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said it's just it's just magnificent. And again, talk about a heavy story. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God, we've got a kid getting lobotomized, mm-hmm. and we've got we're talking about the Holocaust, and now we're talking about the crucifixion. I mean, man, DC mm-hmm. is just there. Yeah. <laughs> see why this is a good one. Man, whew, oh my God. I, I have to say, I think when I, probably when I was a kid, I, I will admit, probably at seven, that story was the one I probably skipped over the most because I just didn't get it. You know, I was just like, all right, what, what are they talking about? But it was only as I got older, I went, oh, no, 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 this thing is a, a diamond. You know, yeah, this story is just so magnificent. So, all right, so the next up is The Stallion. It's an, un, it's an untitled story, but Mike's Amazing World refers to it as The Stallion. That makes mm-hmm. sense. It stars Firehair, and it's from Tomahawk, number 136. My beloved Tomahawk from Tomahawk, number 136, written and drawn by, i got to say it, my former instructor, Joe Hubert. <laughs> oh, I was uh, wondering, do you know, have you heard of him before, Rob? <laughs> yes, I'm slightly familiar with him. <laughs> so uh, the man known as Firehair is riding the countryside when he spies a majestic stallion. He is so impressed by the beast, he decides to capture it and either put it to work or sell it. As he watches it from afar, he doesn't notice that another horse has snuck up behind him, ready to crush him. But the attack is interrupted when the stallion he was watching challenges the other horse, launching a brutal fight. The attacking horse is defeated and wanders off, leaving Firehair to snare the stallion. It bucks and tries to get away, but it cannot escape. Firehair then realizes that the stallion should be with its own kind, especially after saving his life. He takes off the noose and lets the stallion and the rest of the wild horses run free. All right, Paul, what do you think of fire hair? This would have been the story I skipped over when I was okay, a kid. Right, um, right. You know, it's going to be, you know, it's my least favorite of this issue, but it's still a very good story and it's got a good message. The art is beautiful, of course. I mean, yep. especially the page four where the two horses are fighting. Horses are hard to draw, by the way. Yeah. yeah really I, hard I, to draw. I can imagine because. It, you know, it's really um, – I, I wasn't that interested either growing up uh, um, on the 
the Western type stories, so it wasn't as much for me. But it it's still, you know, it's it's deserving. It it doesn't quite come up to the level of the other stories in this book, in my opinion. But it's you know, it's it's a fine fine story. It's a nice mellow story yeah, too. I mellow. mean, it's like when you consider the the drama of the other stories. There's so much action and murder and all these things. And this is really just about Firehair sort of regarding the stallion as something he can just use to his own end. Right. And then he has that moment of realizing, oh wait, this 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 creature, uh, you know, this, this creature cares about its own life yep. as I do mine. And it clearly belongs with these other horses running yeah, free. I know how much you love animals. Uh, right, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, who am I to decide uh, this horse's fate uh, just because I can snare it? And he just feels, and again, Kubert delivers the goods. Once again, Joe Kubert, you know, only did kind of what he felt like doing. And he clearly really loved fire. The splash page, again, another wonderful opening page of fire hair at his campfire. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. looking at these spirits in the background and, love that the the logo is uh, going down from the top to the bottom it's just yeah that's cool beautiful it's absolutely beautiful beautiful story and again horses really hard to draw uh <laughs> you know and so he did it and by the way not a single word balloon in the story mm-hmm. it's all told yeah. through text captions, through uh, yeah. through captions it's just yeah, uh, yeah it's absolutely it's wonderful cool. yeah. so all right so the last story all right, everybody, you got to strap in because the synopsis <laughs> for this one is going to take a while because this is uh this is about an 80-page story crammed into 20-something pages. <laughs> oh, today it would be a 12-issue arc. This, this, uh, this would be a movie <laughs> if they did this today. The final story is The Last Days of Superman. It's from Superman number 156 by Edmund Hamilton, uh, Kurt Swan, and George Klein. So, all right. So when an unmanned space – I'm going to go through this as quickly as I can. When an unmanned space satellite uh, is threatening to impact with a mysterious object in space – Superman pushes the satellite out of the way and realizes that the object is made of green kryptonite. <gasps> With Jimmy Olsen, Superman reads the glowing object and learns that it was from Krypton and contained a sample of Virus X, a deadly plague. Virus, a deadly virus. A deadly virus. Oh, this is so Okay. A deadly plague that could kill Kryptonians. At a safe distance, Superman smashes the glowing object with a rock while Jimmy snaps a pick for the Daily Planet. While Superman suddenly feels weak, he realizes he may have been infected with Virus X. Jimmy takes Superman to the hospital to be diagnosed. A doctor tells Jimmy, Lois, Perry, and Lana Lang that Superman is weakening and is at risk of death. Superman slips out to his fortress of solitude and ponders at all the things he still needs to accomplish and also worries that he might also infect Supergirl with Virus X. Returning to Metropolis to visit the Daily Planet, Superman announces that in the next 30 days, he's going to attempt to accomplish the most important tasks that he wanted to carry out for the Earth before he dies of the virus. Although weakened, Superman attempts to use a giant shovel to dig canals around the Earth as a complex (laughs) irrigation system, but is too weak to do the job. Still wishing to carry on his final task, Superman calls in his Superman robots to build a quarantine room for him so that he can command his friends on how to carry out his final wishes. While Jimmy stays by the Man of Steel's side, Superman summons Supergirl, Crypto, and the Legion of Superheroes to carry out his final tasks. With their aid, he manages to build the irrigation system that he originally intended. Becoming too weak to do any more, Superman returns to his quarantined room. Supergirl leads the Legion on a number of tasks outlined by Superman. As they work, Green Egg 5 works tirelessly trying to find a cure for Virus X, but finds it impossible. 
With Superman's time running out, the Legion and Supergirl save Atlantis from the threat of a radioactively mutated sea creature. <laughs> Super, Superman reflects on his life and goes about saying goodbye to his friends, Batman and Robin, before writing a farewell message on the surface of the moon that <laughs> also it. that also reveals his secret identity. Because <laughs> why not? Satisfied with his accomplishment, Superman waits for his impending death. However, Supergirl's not ready to give up. Traveling through time, she arrives with Krypton of the past, where she learns that a cure was made. However, it would prove to be lethal to all other life in the universe. With no other choice, Supergirl returns to the present to await her cousin's death. We're almost done, everybody. As Superman's condition worsens, Saturn Girl is telepathically contacted by Monel from the Phantom Zone. Monel explains that Superman is not suffering from symptoms of virus X, but from kryptonite poisoning, and reveals that a fragment of kryptonite was embedded in Jimmy Olsen's camera when he snapped a picture of Superman destroying the kryptonite lace containing the virus. With the chunk of kryptonite found and removed, Superman miraculously returns to full health, and before anyone can see the message revealing his secret identity, he, Supergirl, and Crypto combine their X-ray vision to erase the message. With Superman alive and well, the Legion of Superheroes are thanked for all their help, and they return to their own time. <laughs> I am exhausted, Paul. You got to talk for a little bit because I got to. I got to take a sip of water. Get, get, a, get a glass of water. Okay. So first of all, this is just typical of everything in the Silver Age about Superman, and and while you read some of those stories sometimes and you just kind of roll your eyes. If you can read one in isolation, you can really enjoy it. And that's kind of what this, this one is here, right? It's, it's one of these mega events. I meant it before that there's so much happening in this story. Oh that it my could, God. It could, it could take up easily 12 issues of the, of, a, of the Superman comic today. If they tried to try to adapt it. I mean, you start with the, a great splash page. I know you, Chris Swan's not your favorite, but but this is a it, nice splash page. Undoubtedly, this is it's a nice really page. A, a a great splash page gives you the idea. You've got the little people from Candor carrying Superman back into the fortress, saying, "Oh no, he's dying of Virus X." Um, you know that you, then you've got the couple of scenes um, of of the actually destroying the thing. What I really like is, and this is another Silver Age thing on the fourth page, um, where uh, Superman's knows, oh, I know what Virus X is because of his, quote, superpower of total memory, <laughs> where he, I love in this time how Superman remembers things from when he was a baby on Krypton. And he's sitting there playing with his futuristic toys while listening to Jor-El talk about uh, Virus X with another scientist on Krypton. and how Tharb-El, by the way, is his <laughs> name. Great name. Tharb-El. Tharb-El, right. And um, so then you've got Lois and, and Lana uh, crying, and, but that's 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 a good. That's actually a pretty good scene. This is, Lana's like, "We've been rivals for years. How will we ever forget Superman?" And Lois is like, "We must comfort each other." Just, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it's great. Uh, but um, you know, if you think if you if you sort of step back, you start on all these tasks. It really does show you the the kind of heroic thing that Superman really stood for at those times my um during the during the last uh couple of months my wife and i have been uh b- b- before we go to bed uh we watch an episode of the adventures of superman from the 50s george Aww. reeves show and uh um the the way i um twist her arm to doing it is i give her a foot rub while we watch it so she's got an incentive <laughs> to stay awake but um, but anyway uh and this is that that superman right he wants to do the right thing um y- you've got You've got Perry and Jimmy and Jimmy getting into trouble, not even knowing it in this case. But, you know, they couldn't obviously have a giant shovel on that 
on that show, but you know the giant shovel and 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 you know enlarging the people from uh, Candor and saving Atlantis. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's really cool how how he's got all his friends doing his his uh, his work, and it's kind of like it's a wonderful life, you know, where you call you know uh, at the end of that movie, which we watched it over the holidays, right? It's you know uh, George Bailey is in trouble. And guess what? All his friends come and, and pull him mm-hmm. out of trouble. And so that's that's kind of a nice a nice thought, right? A nice uh, feature of it. I, I, I don't know. I, I love that. I know that this is not uh, – it wasn't even close to Edmund Hamilton's last Superman story. Right. But, but it feels like it because it feels like he's just like, I'm putting everything in as I'm going yeah. out the door. Yeah. Here's yeah. everything. We're going to have Superman dying. We're going to have Supergirl. We're going to have the Legion of Superheroes. We're going to have Candor. We're going to have flashbacks to Krypton. We're going to have yep. Kryptonite. The only thing not really in the story is Lex Luthor. They don't work yeah. in Lex Luthor. Other than that, but like Batman visits Batman and Robin. We have the what? Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. I mean, and there's really no villain at all, Rob, right? No. That's no. what's really neat. It's, you know, it's Superman battling a virus, not, although not really, right? Yeah. And, you know, Jimmy being stupid. and Jimmy being time. a giant schmuck. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, really, it's everything that you want in a Superman story. And Jimmy Olsen, just not worth his trouble. Just not. Yeah. I'm sorry. I love what, the, I have to mention, one of the tasks, they go to Antarctica to create another continent for people to live and melt <laughs> all the ice. Like, I'm like, I guess they haven't quite, 1962 didn't really understand global warming at that point melting all the ice caps. <laughs> Hank Superman? Uh, hmm, okay. Uh, look, I will say, uh, art-wise, there are some very nice, first of all, Ed Kurt Swan gets to draw a sad Superman. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. you don't get to see a lot of. I mean, he really looks anguished and stuff. I love on the page five of the story where he goes and he sits on a mountaintop yes. and there's lightning and it's all done uh like it's mostly in shadow yeah. except uh the the blue whoever colored this story i like that the yeah, blue has nice got a slightly darker tint on it where yeah. he's like nothing can save me but i've got 30 days left it's my last chance to help the world before man that's a great moody little panel and and it's uh, a great really message that. too i mean that's superman right if superman yep. really had 30 days left he would do everything he could to help people before he was gone so you know i i remember taking that spirit for what it was i mean even when i was a kid i realized this was an older style story yeah. it's not the same style of story as stuff in the first half of the book right yeah but um but it's 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 you know i used to love reading those kind of stories in like the 100 page giants and stuff you know the old time um batman and superman stories like this but, uh, and I love the message on the moon. You just can't beat it. That's just the, the cherry on the top of the ice cream. I you know? love that he puts Superman parentheses. <laughs> Clark, Clark Kent. Kent. <laughs> that is it's just my, I mean, again, you know, Superman, um, the moon isn't for you to just <laughs> use as your personal Twitter feed. I, I don't know. Superman, you know, um, I, all right. Something else. So I do want to, co- again, I want to compliment the artwork. Yeah, as you know, I'm not. The yeah, Kurt Swan fan, but there's some great moments here. The, on page eight, where um, the giant shovel uh, collapses, and Jimmy and Superman have to kind of run out of the way of it. I love the staging of it, the way that Kurt Swan, that the, the giant scoop is kind of yeah. coming in from the top of the frame, and it really yeah. gives it this sense of like this massiveness as it's falling. I love yeah. that Jimmy doesn't wear like proper clothes to be in the desert. He's still got his suit and his loafers on <laughs> with the camera post- around his neck, with the camera around his neck. neck. I mean, put some shorts on. You're in the <laughs> desert, Jimmy, you idiot. Um, look, at, look at Superman's face on the next page, right? He's really in agony. Yeah. 
Oh, it's right? great. It's it. It's it. it Swan must have really enjoyed this. Again, the amount of information he's got to put in here and all these characters flying around. And you yeah, get mermaids. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they have to rebuild the wall. I mean, it's not super wall-rebuilding vision, like from Superman 4, but it's close. Uh, I love the, how anguished Brainiac 5 is. Where he's yep. like, nothing to do. And, you know, reading this story again, uh, I'm a big fan of Alan Moore's Whatever Happens to the Man of Tomorrow. Sure, final sure. stories. I know Mike Bailey doesn't think it's a great story or whatever, but yeah. we, we, we fight on that. But it's, I love that story. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. And when I read this, I have to think that Alan Moore read this. Oh, yeah. It has absolutely. that same tone to it of yep. all of his friends coming back. I mean, my God, they even, we, they work in Atlantis for Pete's sakes, even yeah. that they find a way. There's so much of it feels like this of like, what would really happen if Superman was about to die? Right. Well, how would right. the world react? And it, it has that similar kind of sad tone to it. So I have right. to think Alan Moore at some and point. It's not it, an imaginary story, right? And so, right, right. again, even at this time, I don't know when I sort of realized that that was a thing because they, they would reprint those in the 100 page giants and stuff too. But, um, but it's not an imaginary story, even nope. though you're, you're like, is it? Should, I mean, Superman really – you know he's not going to die, but let's, no. what's going on? So I, that's not I, the point. Right. And I love the final detail where uh, after Superman realizes, oh, shoot, I just revealed my secret identity, him, <laughs> Supergirl, and Crypto <laughs> – <laughs> use their use their x-ray vision to obliterate the clark kent part but yeah. that's it they don't obliterate the rest of it and you know i know that comics were not they were not built for this in 1962 when this story was published but it would have been awesome if for every dc comic going forward they had put that on the moon that message had still been on the moon 10 years later they still doing stories and they're like oh i Forget it. We or when the Justice League had their headquarters, they had to put you know go around where the message the, these was. giant divots where it says <laughs> Superman. It reminds me a little bit of there was an um, I didn't really watch it that much, but in the nineties there was the Tick cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a character on that show called Chairface Chippendale who had a chair for a head, and there was a, an episode where uh, he carved his name on the moon. And then, ah, and then yeah. apparently, I again, I didn't watch the show, but people who did told me that, like in subsequent episodes, when they showed the moon, it still said his name <laughs> on the moon. And I thought, good for you guys, Very you're clever. making the extra yeah. effort to keep that going. Yeah. So I would have loved it if, like, way up until the crisis, yeah, this message been cool. had been on the moon forever. That I also love the idea that you would allow a dog to shoot heat vision <laughs> from earth all the way to the moon. Like, you know, don't get in the way of this heat vision that a dog is shooting out of. Its own. Oh my God. It's just, when you look at this and then you compare it to where we started with night yes. of the Reaper, yes. it really does feel like, wow, comics have changed a lot in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, it is amazing. And you're right. It's, it's 10 years, only 10 years apart. I mean, but it, it's deserving of being in this book for sure. It's, it's a great it's story. It's a lot of oh, it's, fun. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's intriguing. You want to know what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I personally, I loved, I, I mean, I remembered of course that the kryptonite was in Jimmy's camera. Right. But it's you know, Jimmy Olsen, but, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty clever thing. I mean, that's what yeah. the comics were all about. They, they tried to come up with a clever twist back then, yeah. right? And, yeah. and that built the story around it. And it's like, you know, and so anyway, I, I thought it was terrific. I mean, it, yeah. it is. It's a 90 page story in a 26 yeah. pound yeah. bag. Yeah. It's just, yeah. un, I, Admiral Hamilton, 
I hope when he finished writing it, he took the rest of the day off. He was like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Cigars all around, everybody. I really, I really gave my page rate here for the DC yep. comics. So, so overall, that's the, you know, that's the collection. I did. Overall, it's a, it's a masterful bunch of stories. Very varied in terms of tone, yep. subject. It's not all superheroes. You've got a Western, you've got a horror story, you've got, a sort of war story yeah. and then you've got superman batman and flash and you know your heavy hitters so it it really is in a lot of ways um the best of dc i mean it's for for as much as you could you know call uh 40 years of dc comics history into six stories yeah they did a pretty good job i mean it really, really did really and, good. i mean it it's 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 uh it's well put together um you know a, a lot of them deserve a treasury format for the art right Yep. And um, it's just it's just terrific. Yeah. So um, then on the uh, on the inside cover, there's another note from the editor saying, uh, "We would like to you to let us know uh, what stories you would like to see in another volume." And it gives the rules, and there's an address, so 75 Rockefeller Plaza, mm-hmm. gives a date, dead December 1st, 1977. So I missed that deadline to get the <laughs> thing in only by by 43 years. Uh, and then there's this there's this collage of different covers. Yeah, uh, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in here. You see um, Swamp Thing, which I've always talked about, deserved a treasury. Batlash and Sugar and Spike. It's like DC, don't tease. I noticed. I noticed that <laughs> there they are in the background. <laughs> I know you. Yeah. No, but if you look at some of the covers, I mean, of these stories, they're all seminal stories, and you yeah, could first see Bat them. Girl, yeah. yeah, you could see them appearing in, in some. But this wasn't a you know first appearance or that. It was just these are good stories and. Um, that's, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. Right. You know, we don't, we don't get a lot of that. So that's what was really, um, I always wonder, and I, I, if I had time, I would have like tried to come up with a a, a list of stories, but of course it'd be really hard to come up with a list of stories, but maybe that'd be a fun thing for the listeners to do on the the feedback, come up with a, uh, absolutely. I was going to say that. Yeah. What would you put in volume two? And speaking of volume two, apparently DC had, uh, some selections that they were going to do. Uh, and it was put together. You can find this on Wikipedia, apparently. And it was, okay. there was a second volume of Best of DC would have included stories reprinted from Brave and the Bold number 42, All Star Western number 11, Wow, Superman number 247, and Green Lantern number 75. But it was canceled as part of the DC implosion. So once I again, the DC implosion really screwed everybody that. over. We missed yeah. out on a lot of things. But it's interesting to think what. Like, yeah. why those stories? What was it about? I mean, Green Lantern number 75 is the first Neil Adams, right. you know, the hard-traveling right. heroes one. Uh, but these other ones is kind of interesting as to what they would have what they would have picked. So That's fascinating. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Uh, I said it's it's a darn shame that uh, we never got a chance to see another one of these because after this DC, they kept going with the treasuries, but they moved into more all-new material. And, in fact, this treasury features an ad for the Superman versus Wonder Woman Right, uh, Treasury, which is again another masterpiece. Yeah. But uh, but so this was this was it. This was the one and done. This was this was the only best of DC they ever did. And if you know, it's a shame they only did the one. But boy, the one is really really good. Yeah, very memorable, and it's really uh, it is a shame they didn't get to do more. But you know, the more you do, sometimes it waters it down. And this one, you have a lot of a lot of good memories uh, from it. And and like you said, it's 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 a classic. So. Uh, you know, it's been great. Uh, thanks for having, you know, let me talk about it with you. Oh yeah. I said, this is, again, this is one of my favorites. Oh, and one other personal story I will mention related to this, uh, this book. I unfortunately over time, 
uh, lost the copy that I bought uh, in Woolworths. Uh, it just, I don't know what happened to, it. I never threw away comics, but it must've, I, I probably, probably wore out. I read it so many times. It probably just <laughs> yeah, fell probably. apart, but I lost it at some point. And so cut for flash forward to 1991 and I'm, uh, I'm at the Kubert school and I, we were having a conversation as we did about comics while we were working. And I mentioned this book, you know, I said, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I love this comic. And, you know, this is 1991, so right. way before eBay. And so, you know, they weren't that easy to find sure. outside of conventions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And I happened to mention, oh, I mean, I love this comic. And one of my classmates, his name was Eric Lund, uh, said to me, I think I have that one. And I was like, oh, well, good for you. And he goes, you know what? He's like, I, you can have my copy. He's like, I don't really well, care that much nice. about it. Yeah. And and he gave it to me. And that's the copy I have today. Very that's cool. the copy I have. And he actually he, he actually filled out the uh, the order form for Superman versus Wonder Woman. So it's got his name <laughs> scrawled in it. Great. But, yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. So now you never forget who gave it to you. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I have not kept up with Eric over the intervening decades. But it, uh, if you're out there, uh, thank you, my friend, because uh, I really appreciate it. Because it was it meant a lot to me to have that comic thing. Sure. So, yeah, it is. Except it is really one of the best DC treasuries ever, and it it really cemented my love of this format. And again, I'm six years old, and I'm reading stories about the crucifixion about the Holocaust, about kids getting lobotomies. I mean... And, di- and giant trenches with big shovels. Giant trenches with carving <laughs> your name on the moon. I mean, there's a lot of heavy stuff in, in this collection. So, well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on Treasury Cats. You've now done two podcasts. I hope yeah. that you, after you did the first one, Everyone was joking you're going to want to do more, and now you're back for a second. So yeah. we got other shows you can be on, Paul. Uh, well, you know, my, my wife was like, uh-oh, is this another hobby? <laughs> <laughs> but she uh, she's very supportive, really. So anyway, that, that, thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun um, when you brought up the idea, and I, I looked through my box of, of treasuries. I don't have them all like you, but I got a good good number of them. I saw this one. I'm like, I don't think they've done this one. This is a nope. great one. And I went and looked and I checked with you and you're like, all right, let's do it. And I was like, yep. this is great. This is a good, I, I got lucky. Yeah, so I always you. like, oh, you're welcome. I like to kick off each new year with like a big one, you know, like really let's get the ball rolling. And this is, this is a big one. So Paul, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Yeah. I think the best place is just on Facebook, Paul Ken, K-I-E-N. Uh, they talk comics and anything else. Uh, whenever you do, I, 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 thought about doing some other stuff but haven't haven't taken the plunge but uh, that's probably the best place i had a couple of people after the last podcast you know friend me so feel free to do that and and talk comics too. and i guarantee paul you will be on other shows across the network we've <laughs> oh, got nice. you now we got our hooks into you buddy you're not getting free that's it done thanks everybody for listening i want you to stay tuned we're going to play some podcast promos i'm going to come back i'm going to do some listener feedback Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I like Superman. Like, a lot. Like, he's my favorite character. I like him so much that I have podcasted about the Man of Steel more than any other character. Back in 2017, I started a show called It All Comes Back to Superman, to serve as the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. Well, the monthly thing hasn't worked out, but I'm hoping to change that in 2020. This year, there will be at least one episode a month of the show, and most of those will be part of a series I'm calling Superman is for Everybody. Superman is for Everybody 
springs from my desire to talk to people that have channeled their love and affection for the character into other avenues, like cosplay, or podcasting, or academia. New episodes will drop in the first or second week of the month, with special episodes popping up at random, because that's how I roll, apparently. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailytude podcasting network, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. The show is available through Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and it's even on Spotify. It all comes back to Superman. Because really, it does. Give me a few minutes and I'll make the connection. Why are you walking away? I'm not done talking to you. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Star Commander Girl. Steel. Power Seven Man. Soldiers of Liberty. Liberty Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire & Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of themed shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the Golden Age of Comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. We'll launch this new series with an ongoing show called Justice Society Presents Crisis, in which Rob and Shag go through each of the classic team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Then joining the podcast feed will be the Starman Chronicles. Chris and Cindy continue their coverage of James Robinson's epic series from beginning to end. Later in the year, Ryan Daly and Max Romero will tackle the Vertigo title, Sandman Mystery Theater. And two years later, Ryan will cancel it. That's probably... Then in the coming months and years, we'll be adding further ongoing shows and one-off specials celebrating other beloved characters and comics related to the JSA of any era, from the 1940s to today. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we're back with listener feedback, and this is feedback from episode 53 of Treasury Cast with my guest Chris Franklin, where we talked about Christmas with Archie. And we're going to get to the comments from the website, of course, firewaterpodcast.com. First up is Chuck Collada, who says, I really enjoyed this trip back to Riverdale, guys. I got back into Archie several years ago when the Life with Archie Married Life magazines began hitting the stores. There's some really nice Norm Brayfogle art in those issues. The only time I was ever able to get Norm's autograph was on an Archie collection. I presented on the character several times over the years at academic conferences. They were designed as nostalgia even back in the 40s, and they are fun time capsules of American pop culture over the decades. Issues on pet rocks and other fads are fun. The line also had gotten much more adventurous and even adult in recent years. I'd recommend the Ben and Veronica miniseries by Adam Hughes, the horror-themed Afterlife with Archie, and the Fiona Staples slash Mark Wade reboot. By the way, trivia, Bob Hastings, Commissioner Gordon on Batman the Animated Series, was Archie on the radio from 1945 to 1953. I did not know that. Thanks very much, Chuck. And then Edo Boznar says, ah, yes, Treasury Cast never disappoints and even finds a way to cover Archie. Needless to say, I never knew there was an Archie Treasury-sized book, so the show was a nice revelation. And naturally, I quite enjoyed the conversation. It was particularly interesting to hear the stories about your experiences with Archie. I have to say, mine was a bit different. 
I got my start reading superhero comics at about the age of six and only started reading Archie sometime at the end of the third grade. For roughly the next year, I read Archie's and Funny Animals, mainly Disney Ducks, almost to the exclusion of everything else. But then, just before fifth grade, I returned to my first love, superheroes, in a big way. More recently, I started reading Archie again. Earlier this year, I plowed through a number of the Digest reprint books published a few years ago when Archie Comics were observing their 75th anniversary. Those were perfect, lighthearted reading for this dismal year. Anyway, on top on the topic of artists, I'm not an expert or anything, but looking over the samples in your gallery page, I'd say most of it was done by either Dan DiCarlo or Stan Goldberg. Well, I think the art in the old standby and when you got to grow was done by Harry Lucy. Lucy is probably one of my favorite Archie artists who worked mainly from the 50s through the early 70s. And it seems like his was the house style in the 50s and 60s before DiCarlo became more prominent. And finally, on that age-old question related to Archie, I'm on Team Veronica. And I should also note she wasn't always portrayed as a spoiled and sometimes mean rich girl. I noticed in these digests I mentioned above that in a lot of the early stories, she was often the nice one, while Betty was shown as something of a schemer, always trying to get between Archie and Veronica. All right. <laughs> thank you, Ado. I, I appreciate you taking a stance on the Team Betty or Team Veronica. Uh, again, thank you much, uh, everybody, for the comments. I really do appreciate it. That was a fun book to do with, with Chris. And uh, I guess that is going to do it for this episode of Treasure Cast. Huge thanks to my pal Paul Ken for coming by and talking about Best of DC, LCE number 52. Again, one of my favorite treasures of all time. So it was just a blast to talk to him about all those stories in there. If you have not uh, gotten that comic, go get it. Get Go get the treasure. You can find decent copies on eBay for not a ton of money. It's not the greatest condition in the world, but boy, is it a solid, solid collection of, of stories. So again, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Of course, if you want to follow this show, you can go to the website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Treasury Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. We're always talking treasuries over on Twitter at Treasury Comics. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you want to support the network and you love Treasury Comics, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. That's going to do it for this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until the next episode, go big or go home. Ah, the simple joys of Halloween. Good evening. My name is Kane, storyteller and caretaker of the House of Mystery. Oh, but of course you know the House of Mystery. It's that old dark ruin at the end of the street that you'd swear wasn't there the last time you looked. <laughs>